But we are starting the show talking about the BC Liberal Party set to become BC United. And joining us to talk more about this is Trevor Halford, BC Liberal MLA with uh, For Surrey White Rock. Trevor, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we heard from Kevin Falcon, uh, the party leader, earlier today uh, saying uh, that uh, party members have voted to change the name to BC United. Uh, Kevin Falcon saying that 80% of the voters who cast a ballot were in favour and that he was thrilled with the result. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's a step forward in renewal. And this is a, a commitment that Kevin made when he launched his leadership uh, campaign. And it's a commitment he's filled. And this has been a conversation that is happening in our party for almost two decades now. So um, I'm, I'm ecstatic that we got to this stage, but there's still a lot more work ahead. Uh, did you vote? Absolutely, I voted. I did. And I did vote for a name change. Um, you know, this is something, like I said, that we've been talking about for two decades. I, this is the first political party that I've ever belonged to. And uh, I know that this has been important and a, a very topical conversation for our members for, uh, for a lot of years. And when you talk about renewal, what does the name, what will the name change do as far as renewal for the party? Well, I think it'll do a number of things. Is We've always been a big tent party and we are always better when we're united. And, you know, we are uh, not just a coalition of uh, federal liberals and federal conservatives, but I can tell you right now, um, I'm hearing from NDP uh, voters in the past that are looking to come over to our party because when you look at what this government has done in five years, you know, we're looking at a government that has cut individualized funding for children with autism. We're looking at a government that has failed two times its promise to do a renter's rebate of $400. So it's, it's not just, uh, you know, federal liberals and federal conservatives coming in. There's a lot of disenfranchised people out there that, that don't feel that they have a home with this government. Right, but you can take on all of those issues and you can be the opposition and you can do all of that. Uh, you, nothing was stopping a BC Liberal from doing that under the name BC Liberals. So how do things change then with the name of the party changing? Well, we've, we've heard a number of times is that there, there does tend to be a lot of confusion at election time uh, when it comes to our name. And, you know, I, I think that, like I said, we are a coalition of, of uh of both federal liberals and federal conservatives and, and other segments across this province. And, and I think people, you know, wanted to make sure that, you know, we, we had a name that spoke about, about unity and, and that's how we ended up where we are today. Uh, the numbers, uh, again, uh, voting overwhelmingly to change the name, but it was, uh, I think the numbers I saw was about 8,100 members uh, of the 45,000 members voted. So not a huge number of people voting. Why do you think that number is so low? Well, I I would say this: that's eighty one hundred more people that that voted compared to an NDP NDP leadership race that that failed to happen. Um, that was basically a coronation. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm proud that that we did have this, and uh, you know, the numbers are um, you know eighty percent in favor in terms of um, having eight thousand people that voted in it. Uh, it was an online vote. Um, we made sure that we were reaching out to both rural and urban communities, and. Uh, you know, I think the members really did have a chance to have their say.
there there have been questions about the name as well, and I think any it, it wouldn't matter what the name was sure. that it was changing yeah. to. There there are always going to be people that perhaps poke fun at it or question it. And I know uh, Kevin Falcon was asked about this earlier as well. Uh, asked, I think he was asked if if the name change could be confusing, and his response was, "It's not like we're Coca Cola. People people are going to figure this out." But but yeah. what do you say to some of the criticism that it kind of sounds like a soccer club or a football club or it's it's an odd choice for the party name yeah well i I like soccer uh you know my my kids are in soccer so i I do like that that approach um but but i will say this is that at the end of the day people are going to want to know what we stand for and and that will really is going to be what differentiates from uh from this ndp government in terms of of what we are going to be communicating out um, you know, when it comes to a when it comes to a new name, I I would say this is that you know uh, for us it's it's going to be a change, but it's also going to be about renewal. Renewal is getting candidates like we got with Eleanor Sturco in Surrey South. Um, I think we're all very very proud to have Eleanor join our team, and it'll be about other candidates that we're attracting. Um, you know, I know the NDP is on a you know a communications mission right now, but the one thing I'll say on them is that I think a lot of people are going to argue that they're not a new party, nor are they very democratic right now. So they've got some branding exercises that they need to be focused on as well. But but Eleanor Sturko joined the BC Liberals, so it clearly wasn't a problem or issue getting somebody like Eleanor Sturko uh, under that name. Well, I, I don't think Eleanor uh, joined. I'm pretty confident on this. I don't think Eleanor joined because of the name of the party. Eleanor joined because of the leader of the party and, and what this party represents. I, I don't think the name was a selling factor for her. I think it was about the vision that Kevin was putting forward. Uh, what will happen? So as far as timing then, from, from what I understand, so it needs to be approved at convention. When do you think realistically this name will officially be the name of the party? Well, I think uh, what, what Kevin has said this morning and what he said all along since we've embarked on this process is that, you know, we want to get it done as soon as possible. And uh, obviously there's, there's a lot that goes into it. But also, we have to be very smart about that. Uh, you know, we've uh, right now the choice of when we go to an election is going to be up to uh, uh, Premier Designate David Eby, and this is a government that has you know chosen in the past not to adhere to fixed election dates. So um, you know that that is something that is in the back of our minds. Is it's the government that is going to take a you know call a snap election? Um, we don't have the answer to that. So you know we intend to move very quickly on this. Um, but again, uh, you know, we're going to be very smart about how we proceed. And how do you think the name will work as far as in conversation now? It's the BC Liberal Party, often referred to as the BC Liberals, uh, or uh, members are called Liberals. How do you do that with BC United? Is it the BC Uniters? BC Uniters? Well, how do you how do you kind of shorten it if you're talking about like right now you'd be talking about the liberals? How do you how do you shorten it or make it conversational or or can you not do that because it's not uh, it's a it's a word like united? Well, I, that's a good question. I think it's going to come down to kind of a personal choice, and it's something that uh, I, I you know it's it's going to be kind of fun to go through this process, right? And have the conversations. And one of it is, is going out and talking to members of our party. And I I know that I've been doing that over the last year. And since we've put forward the name United is having those conversations. And I think it's going to come all uh, natural to us uh, sooner rather than later. All right, Trevor, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
Appreciate your time, Joe. Let's talk a little bit more about this. We were just chatting with Trevor Halford, who is a BC Liberal MLA for Surrey White Rock, will at some point be a BC United MLA because, as you heard, the party has voted to change the name. Let's bring in Stuart Prest, political scientist at Quest University in Squamish. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, vote? And it was 80% in favor. It was about 8,000 of 45,000 members voting to go ahead and change that uh, party name. Yeah, I think it's uh, best understood as part of a larger effort by the the now uh, new BC United, former BC Liberal Party, or soon to be uh, BC United Party, to try to present themselves uh, in a different light to voters after a couple of disappointing results at uh, at the ballot box. I think it's part of a larger effort to reposition the party as uh, something that can compete, can compete in the contemporary uh, political space in, in the province. So it, it, if that larger rebooting effort is successful, then I think this, this new name will be seen as a success. How much do you have to actually change, though, in that, uh, sure, a new name is a big uh, uh, rebranding, and as uh, Trevor Halford referred to it a couple of times there, is a a good chance for renewal. But people will see through that, won't they, unless there are actions that back it up? Yeah, I think that's right. Really, a a name change, if if the policies uh, associated with the the party don't change uh, substantively or voters don't perceive that kind of change, it's it's not going to mean much. And it may even come across as as a bit gimmicky or or simply trying to put a a new coat of paint without making more substantive changes. So there's a certain amount of risk there, but it certainly draws attention to the the party and and, uh, is trying to say, look, we're doing something different here. And, And now it's up to the party to to back that up with a different kind of, of message to voters as well. What do you think of the name BC United? Well, I, I think it's interesting in a couple of ways. It I, it is uh, attention getting in that they've dropped the the label party from the actual name, and so we inevitably get these jokes about it. It's sounding like a, a soccer team, uh, and I guess that that is part of getting that that attention. We are here talking about it, but it is interesting to think what is being united here because. This is not a united conservative party in this, the mold of the uh, UCP in Alberta next door. This is an attempt, it seems like, to reunite the sort of centrist liberal voters, federal liberal voters with the central the center-right conservative voters. That, that was the, the core of the coalition that the, the B.C. Liberal Party uh, uh, was successfully uh, drawing on during it, its years in power in the, the first part of the century. So I think when we're talking about uniting, it's, it's that union, that uneasy union of federal liberal and federal conservative uh, voters that, that they're trying to, to capture here. And that's, that's a very uh, narrow uh, needle to thread, to be honest. There was a a reaction earlier, I think it was this week, where one of the BC Liberal MLAs put out on social media a bit of a rant against spending money to educate people about vaccinations for kids. And it was taken down quickly and it got a lot of reaction. And one of the responses was, are there any BC Liberals left in the BC Liberal Party? And I thought that was it was an interesting question. They were obviously poking fun at it. But is that does that kind of point at, at the problem and like what you were saying on, on who is who are the members of this party and and what do they stand for? 
Yeah, it gets right to the heart of that that dilemma, where if this party, uh, whatever we call it, if it leans too far to uh, more social conservative lines, uh, it, it can alienate those those centrist urban voters that they've had trouble connecting with. So they have to be really careful about that. And we've seen the party make some uh, moves in that regard. So, to, to for instance, to remove a, a climate skeptic from from caucus and, and so on, to try to signal that this is a a moderate centrist party and and. and and the, the sort of fringes of conservative politics in the country, it's not a home for them anymore. But but do that too much, and then you, you uh, are at risk of losing the, the conservative voters that form part of the bloc. And indeed, the, the voters that this name change is uh, supposed to mollify, to move away from the liberal brand. How important do you think timing is? And the leader, uh, Kevin Falcon, was asked about this earlier about, uh, I know David Eby has said that he will honour fixed election dates, that he doesn't plan or he, he, he would not be calling any snap elections. But how important is timing, do you think, to let voters kind of get used to the new name and, and think of it as, and realise that who we're talking about before heading into an election? Yeah, I think that that plays a large role in the timing that we're seeing this happen a couple of years out from the next scheduled election. And it's interesting that we effectively have a, a period of reorganization ongoing in in both the leading parties uh, right now, where we have uh, David Eby uh, moving into the premiership. And, and so he's going to have to reintroduce himself to British Columbians as the leader of uh, the NDP and, and what that leadership entails. And and the, the B.C. Liberals, B.C. United, are using using that same time to, to reorganize with this period of stable NDP government to, to present themselves in this new light. And we still have to wait and see exactly what the message is going to be behind this, uh, this new BC United Party, although we, we've seen glimpses of it. It has to do with uh, uh, themes like uh, public safety, uh, some fiscal responsibility, but also trying to signal the, a certain kind of inclusivity that uh, perhaps was lacking in previous incarnations of the BC Liberal Party, it remains to be seen whether all those messages resonate with voters. And that's, I think, some of the ground that this next upcoming election is going to be fought on. Uh, we only have about a minute, but do you think that this will also, for people who maybe are, are farther right and don't feel at home under a BC United party, will this kind of re-energize a Conservative Party in BC? I think that's a, it's an important question. I don't think the BC Conservative Party is poised to to win a bunch of seats or anything like that. But if this new incarnation of the center right party doesn't seem to be a home for those kinds of more uh, further right, populist right, whatever label you want to give to to it, uh, uh, ideas within the conservative movement in in the province, then you could see just even a, a couple of. Uh, uh, hundred votes, maybe a thousand votes in in some key battleground ridings may be enough to to cost the BC United some some seats in an upcoming election, and so that is really going to be an, an important question. It, it speaks to this balancing act that this party is going to have to maintain uh, to to if it is going to compete and be successful in an upcoming election. All right, Stuart Prest, thank you as always. Great to have you on the show today. It's my pleasure. Anytime. It is time to check in with Claire Newell. And Claire, we are talking to you from a very far away destination. Tell us all about it. 
Yeah, it's been on my bucket list for a really, really long time. You may have heard me talking about Antarctica for the past couple of years. And we originally planned this for our 25th wedding anniversary, and now it's 27. So um, I'm actually in a little tiny part of Antarctica, uh, the Antarctic Peninsula called Mickelson Harbor right at the moment. But it was quite a journey to actually get here. Um, the The initial flight was Vancouver to Toronto, and then from Toronto down to Buenos Aires, spent a couple of nights there and then headed down to um, uh, Ushuaia, which is basically the southernmost point in Argentina where the ships actually sail from and head down to Antarctica. There's a, there's a passage, and if anyone has ever researched this area, the Drake Passage, and it's a, it's about a 36 to 48 hour journey across the Drake Passage to get to Antarctica, the, the, this seventh continent. It's, it really is like being on a different planet, Jill, mm. but that Drake Passage can either be the Drake Lake, or it can be the Drake Shake. And uh, the crew on board told us that it was about a, a five out of ten. So there were some people who were a wee bit seasick. I am very grateful <laughs> that my husband and I were okay. Um, but once we arrived here, it, it's just—it's actually the word to you that we've been using to each other is 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 surreal. You know, we've been able to see unbelievable wildlife already. I, I can't get enough of the penguins and there's this cool discovery team that are on board they're naturalists and geologists and biologists there's a group of about 20 of them they're so animated about everything that's um that's here in this part of the world which is so remote i mean it's so inhospitable the wind and the um the weather is is pretty harsh it's actually uh going to be around three degrees today as a as a high and zero as a minimum so a lot of people have been asking me is it freezing cold. <laughs> it's freezing, but it's not nowhere near some parts of Canada, in fact, at, at this time of the year because it's their spring. But it's been a an incredible journey. The very first day we saw an emperor penguin, which stands about four feet tall. Mm. And I, you know, you take a picture of it, you're so, you're excited, and, and then we go on to see some other types of penguins, Adelie penguins and Gentoo penguins. We're learning all about that, uh, about the, 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 the many different penguins that are down here. And we saw some seals and some really great huge birds with two and a half meter wingspans. Um, they, that basically stay out at sea almost their entire life. And so, we came, come back and the discovery team, this group of naturalists said there were some of them have, who have been down for four seasons, four entire spring, summer seasons and never seen an emperor penguin. They mm. live so inland. So they were so hyped about this and we just took it for granted. Now we don't. We're very grateful. We actually saw one. Um, and my husband and I were also lucky enough to do a helicopter ride over top and some of the, the landscapes. I haven't actually shared that yet on my Instagram, um, but I have put a lot of it up. I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look at it, Jill, but if you go to my own personal site, which is Claire Newell Travel, all one word, there's some highlights. There are these circles that you can go in and there's um, pictures and video that you can follow along. And there's one particular circle that's called Antarctica. And you can see kind of what it's like because it's very, very hard to explain to anybody what we're seeing along the way. We go, we, we are on a, a boat 
it's a discovery yacht. It's really beautiful, but it's built like a, a you know, brick house. It's an actual, an ice breaker and it's really tough. And we go out by Zodiac each day. Sometimes Zodiac cruises where we're just hovering the coastline because there is no place for us to do a landing and others. Uh, and I'm about to do one in about an hour is a landing where we actually get the chance to, to go onto land. And, and there's not very many places that you can because over 90, I think it's 97% of Antarctica is completely covered in ice and snow and so many glaciers. You might remember I went to Alaska this summer mm-hmm. and I did see a glacier. The, the, the glaciers around here are just everywhere. They're all around you and these huge tabular icebergs that are floating by. I, I, there is a picture actually that you'll see if you go and, and take a look at that Instagram site that see you can see the very first iceberg that I saw, which was so exciting. Now they're just, you know, we're taking for granted that they're floating by us every day. <laughs> well, it sounds amazing. And yeah, so people can go if people are on yeah, Instagram, Claire Newell Travel and uh, see all of the, the great sites because you're right, you can you can describe it. But uh, seeing the, the photos and the video, it just uh, seems so amazing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's certainly not for everybody. It's uh, quite the journey to get here, but it's, yeah, I feel really grateful that I'm able to see this continent. And, uh, it was in it, on my top of my bucket list for a really long time, and it's met every expectation I ever had for, for this destination. It's just, like I say, surreal to be here. Oh, yeah, absolutely uh, amazing. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about travel news as well, since uh, we have you, and, and we'll, we can talk more about Antarctica, yeah. but there's also some, some headlines and some things happening in the world of travel. Yeah, there are. I just wanted to hit a few of those headlines um, since I've been gone and in just the, the past couple of days. Canada Jetlines, which is one of the new low-cost carriers in Canada, is introducing their first international route. That's going to be between Toronto and Las Vegas. They will start that service beginning January the 19th of next year. And they will, real, they've said that they're going to fly a new route multiple, that route multiple times weekly, and you can actually buy them already. They're available to book. Um, one of the other things that started just as I left was that Air Canada has resumed their direct flights between Vancouver and New Zealand. That actually started on November the 10th, and Air Canada will be flying three times a week directly between Vancouver and Auckland. As the airline continues its schedule of expansion into the South Pacific, which, as you know, Jill, has been very slow to open up. Um, but speaking about that part of the world um, as well, well, more specifically, Japan, WestJet has just expanded a code share with Japan Airlines. So WestJet's code can now be added onto Japan Airlines operated flights between Vancouver and Narita. So that's going to allow clients to be seamlessly booked to travel to Tokyo via Vancouver from across WestJet's entire domestic network. So if you collect points, um, you can say leave from Toronto or leave from Calgary, go through Vancouver. Your bag would, would be checked all the way and you'll be able to collect all the, the, the points and bonuses that you would normally get from WestJet. That is uh, great because uh, you're right. Uh, people like things uh, when it's seamless and you know your luggage and everything is going to uh, to, to arrive. Uh, I wanted to ask you the, um, the direct flights, the Air Canada flights to New Zealand. Do you know how long those flights are? 
Yeah, they're long. I've done them myself. And um, if I remember correctly, it was 12 or 13 hours, but really comfortable flights. It's on their big uh, 787 Dreamliners. So those aircraft, you typically feel really good even coming off an economy seat. That is good to know, but still a very uh, long flight for a lot of people. Um, you also uh, mentioned or were talking about the Open Skies Agreement. Uh, and I, I saw this earlier, the, the lifting of the cap when we're talking about flights uh, between Canada and India. Right. So this will be a new open skies agreement that has been signed between Canada and India. And for those who don't realize, India is Canada's fourth largest air market. And so this new deal allows for unlimited flights between the two countries, which were previously capped at 35 per week. So this will open up uh, a lot of opportunities for air industry growth. So maybe more competition moving forward, which would bring some of those really high fares if you've ever had India on your bucket list. Um, so that's good news for consumers potentially. All right. And uh, I, I, do you have deals for us today? Or I know that you've been busy on this trip and in Antarctica. So that's that's fine if you don't. But I just wanted to make sure uh, we put it out there in case you do. I know. I wish I was more on top of it. But I have been trying to enjoy and take in every minute of, of Antarctica. Really important to keep up, up with, of course, those the, the travel news but and what's going on where I am. But uh, I think I'm going to have to direct everyone to travelbestbets.com. I, I have been getting reports from the office that it is incredibly busy. My guess is it's getting a bit cooler there and people starting to put their uh, their winter vacations on the agenda now. All right. Well, Claire, I look so forward to following along uh, your adventure on Instagram and hearing more about it. So thank you so much. It's been great to connect with you while you are so far away in Antarctica. Yeah, really fun too. Uh, Thanks so much, Jill, and I will certainly be sharing more along the way. We are now going to take a look at some pretty big, although expected, news out of the United States. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. That was Donald Trump yesterday, part of a rather lengthy speech when he announced that, yes, he will be running again to be the president of the United States. Well, Alan Lickman joins us now, an American political historian, also the author of 12 books, including The Case for Impeachment. Alan Lickman, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Uh, What are your thoughts on the announcement, the much anticipated announcement we heard from Donald Trump? I have to say it was one of the most boring things I've ever heard. You know, Donald Trump, one thing you can give him is that he is interesting, exciting, fun. He was absolutely low energy last night. Uh, It was like he was reading from a script painfully with someone with a gun to his head. There was no energy, no enthusiasm. The audience didn't respond. It was all the same old stuff we've been hearing for seven years, you know, without him, America's going down the drain. It's American carnage. Only he could save it. It was filled with some of the most egregious lies. The worst of them all was the claim that we don't have to worry about climate change for another 300 years because seas are, are only going to rise one-eighth of an inch in 300 years. Well, the best science says it might rise likely 10 to 12 inches in just 30 years which could put Miami deeply in trouble and even Mar-a-Lago in trouble. And that was only one of uh, 20-some-odd lies. 
Uh, is it because he's been able to get away with it or that's something he does and his followers will still follow him and will s- still support him? Absolutely. You know, there's something called the big lie. It's a time-honored, time-honored uh, technique. If you say something loudly enough, often enough, people will come to believe it. And Trump's followers seem to be impervious to any kind of debunking. Like Trump says, anything that contradicts his lies is part of the deep state and attempt to get him a witch hunt. Plus, Trump's been getting away with this for more than 50 years, not only as a politician, but as a man of business. He's never been held accountable for anything, and he believes he's invulnerable. Uh, This announcement came uh, while we're still looking at those results of the midterm elections and uh, uh, safe to say it is not the result that the Republicans were hoping for. How does that factor in, do you think, the fact that he still made the announcement and uh, in that speech, as as you've characterized and others uh, called uh, meandering and quite boring, how does what's happening with the midterms, do you think, how is that connected or what, what kind of role did it play in this announcement? I don't think it played a role in the timing of the announcement, although, you know, he wanted to do it after the midterms, obviously. But I think his goal is to immunize himself from prosecution. Of course, simply running for president does not give you immunity from prosecution. But he believes that if he's an announced presidential candidate, uh, Democratic prosecutors will hesitate to indict him for fear of the reaction. But legally, He has no protection. Plus, you know, announcing after this incredibly disappointing midterm for Republicans meant that the announcement was meant with a whimper, not with a bang. Even conservative commentators, even some prominent leading conservative Republicans like Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Deep Red, Arkansas, were highly critical of Donald Trump and believe that the party needs to move on. But the truth is... uh, the problems with the party are not limited to Donald Trump. If Donald Trump disappeared tomorrow, you would still have a party deeply mired in election lies and denial. Two-thirds of Republicans, according to the exit polls from the midterm, don't think that Biden was legitimately elected. Plus, the Republican Party has abandoned virtually everything it professed to stand for. Personal morality, personal responsibility, a joke for a party that embraces Herschel Walker and Donald Trump. States' rights, limited government gone, and a party that's advocating a national abortion ban to override the states and literally investigate who knows how many tens of millions of women. Respect for traditional institutions. Republicans are the first party in history to violate the peaceful transfer of power a 200-year-plus American tradition, and try to overturn a legitimate Democratic election. So the Republican Party has a lot of soul-searching to do that is independent of Donald Trump. Uh, We've also seen this week uh, Mike Pence has been doing interviews. I know he's pushing his book, but we've heard language and heard comments from Mike Pence that we've not heard before and and comments that are very negative of Donald Trump. What does that tell you about Mike Pence and perhaps his political ambitions? Well, it tells you Mike Pence is preparing for his own presidential nomination run and he needs to clear 
uh, Donald Trump out of the trail in front of him because Pence is so far behind not only Trump but also DeSantis in uh, the polls for the Republican nomination. And I give Pence absolutely no credit. He waited two years before saying these things and only said these things when he's peddling his book and preparing a presidential campaign. That is hardly the moral leadership we'd expect from him. Do you think he has a more credible chance or would there be supporters, say, of Donald Trump that would switch camps or that would go with Mike Pence? Or now that he said the negative things, even though it did take two years, would that be enough to to alienate them? I would be shocked to see the supporters of Donald Trump turn to Mike Pence. There are other potential Republicans who are much closer to Donald Trump in their outlook uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, notably, but others like, uh, for example, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Uh, Pence would be far down on the list of second choices for Donald Trump's face. And let's not forget, you know, Donald Trump could well be in, indicted well before the nominating process even begins. So this is disqualify him from running. You can run if you're indicted. You can run in, if you're convicted. You can run from jail. Eugene V. Debs ran from jail, the socialist candidate in 1920, and got a million votes. That would be something, wouldn't it, if that's what we were looking at for the next election in the United States. But I'm glad you brought that up because I was curious as well. We're looking at this. This is somebody, the only U.S. president who's impeached twice. Like you said, under this cloud of this investigation, possibility of being indicted, like you just said. So that doesn't stop him from running. But I would imagine that that would have or maybe it wouldn't have an impact on his campaign. Well, it's got to have an impact. I mean, there may be, you know, some core base supporters who don't care. But, you know, to win the nomination and certainly to win the general election, you've got to go beyond the hardcore base. And uh, having an indictment or maybe even a conviction hanging over him would be baggage that he cannot transcend. I'm going to go out on a limb and say... I still don't believe Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee for president. Well, that that means a lot because I know you also have an, an incredibly uh, uh, an incredible history of predicting uh, outcomes of elections, specifically the presidential election results. But but to say that as well, uh, I would think that there's uh, there's a lot of weight behind that, and people would would agree with you that perhaps that that we're not going to be looking at him as the candidate. No, there's just too much baggage there for Donald Trump to credibly make another run. I don't have a prediction system for nominations, although I do for the general election. And the truth is, the identity of the Republican candidate is not going to matter much at all in terms of the general election results. According to my model, which has been right since 1984, uh, the critical element that decides a presidential election is the strength and performance of the party holding the White House, the Democratic Party. And that's what's going to decide this election. If things go well for President Biden and he runs again, so it's not an open seat situation, then likely the Democrats are going to be favored. If things go badly and Biden doesn't run again, creating an open seat, uh, any Republican could win.
Hmm. And do you have a sense or a thought on on the probability of either of those scenarios, Biden running or Biden not running? Uh, I'm not a physician, so I can't (laughs) comment on health and age. But leaving that aside, I'm quite certain Biden would want to run. According to my system of 13 keys, if six keys go against the White House party, they're predicted losers. If Biden doesn't run, they lose the incumbency key. It'll be an open seat. And they lose the internal party battle seat because there'll be a big fight for his successor. So if the Democrats want to win, their best chances are to secure those two keys and not lose them by having Biden run again. Interesting times, indeed, in what's happening in the United States. Alan Lickman, will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. My pleasure. You know where to find me next time. Well, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase therapeutic fibbing or perhaps compassionate lying? Honesty, not always the best policy, perhaps? Well, my next guest is a caregiving advocate and advisor, also the co-producer of a web series, and it's a pretty dramatic comedy web series, so we're going to find out all about it. Katrina Prescott joins me to talk more about this. Katrina, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate that. Well, I'm so excited that we're talking about this because uh, I'll be full, completely honest. I'd never heard the phrase therapeutic fibbing before, but I was uh, reading about it and thought, oh, that is that is just so interesting. So I'm so glad you're here uh, to talk about this. Uh, why don't we start by talking a bit about the web series? And if you, you want, you can uh, introduce us to the family uh, that is part of this and how you got involved. Okay, yeah, thanks. So, um, basically, I guess we could start about how I got involved. Um, my producing partner and myself and someone else that uh, we work with, an award-winning writer, Pat Holden, and my producing partner, Jessica Fraser, we've all had um, or currently have moms living with dementia. And we really wanted to bring, um, you know, some light to the topic. It can be very isolating and lonely and hard and challenging uh, for everyone involved. And a lot of the content out there is not that uplifting. So um, we try to practice that in our own life, you know, just to make things a little more sustainable and enjoyable and find those moments in joy. So that's kind of really how we kind of came together on the series, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think you're right. So many people have relatives or loved ones or have had dementia uh, impact their lives and their families in some way. And, and it's difficult to, to find the, the lightheartedness or to find a way maybe of, of trying to find a, an outlet of dealing with it. Yeah, totally. And, you know, when, when you change the way you look at things, sometimes the things that you look at change and there's moments of joy and and comedy, <laughs> even even in, in dementia, not really, I think, is great for everybody who's involved um, to bring a little lightheartedness to um, what can be a challenging situation. And uh, a lot of the content out there is just really not uh, that uplifting. So we really want to create something that people could relate to um, and 
and they are. We're getting such good feedback on the show. People are leaving comments about how uh, therapeutic fibbing <laughs> plays into their lives and their stories. So we really enjoy reading that, and it gives us ideas for more. So that's also on the way. But, um, yeah, this series um, really revolves around a family, like the matriarch of, of our of our four-part, um, four-episode series. Uh, it revolves around the matriarch of a family and different members of the family and, you know, kind of some of the successes and the realities of how things go in certain situations where therapeutic fibbing is employed. <laughs> so, so talk a bit more about that. That is the name of the series, but how would you define therapeutic fibbing? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, therapeutic fibbing is also sometimes known as compassionate lying but basically in my mind's eye how i think of it is truly you know meeting the person living with dementia where they are in my experience uh there was a lot of anxiety present for my mom and a lot of stress and at first i really pushed back on that i was like no i want you to understand (laughs) what i'm saying and and i don't you know a lot of that i think was tied to me not wanting her to change in my heart, right? But eventually I caught up to that and it was just easier to um, meet her where she was. And it, it really relaxed her, mitigated a lot of stress and, and distress for both of us. It made life that much easier and um, it just really felt like the right thing to do. Um, And I know a lot of people are using this technique for their families. And sometimes it might be hard to kind of get there at first. Well, I've never lied. I don't want to lie. And, you know, it's, it's, a step, it's, a, it's a step in a different direction. It's really um, mitigating that stress. And, and it is compassionate, in my, in my view. Right. And, and I think that you've raised a really good point. And then someone might think at first, well, wait a minute, you're, you're lying to this person and this, this loved one or this parent or relative. But, but when you say that kind of meeting them where they're, where they are, it's not, not the same as lying to cover something up or lying for, for some kind of malicious intent. It, it really is coming from a good place. Truly it is, and, and we, you know, as you, you've seen the series, we do explore that, you know, in one episode, um, the mom doesn't realize she's home and wants to go home. Okay, you know, let's just hop in the car and get her home. <laughs> you know, why, why not? I mean, I had so many examples of, of that in my personal life um, as a caregiver to mom. And, uh, you know, does this outfit look good? Yep, looks great, Mom. Let's get on, <laughs> get on with it, right? Um, and then, you know, if it was, really wasn't, oh, let's change it up a little bit. But, you know, it really just kept kept things light. And, and for me, that was also important as a caregiver, just to give her as much peace and joy and happiness um, as I possibly could during this time that was very challenging for her and, and really, really was a lot of stress and anxiety there that was present. And I, like you said, we're saying, too, that drawing on so many real-life scenarios or real-life examples coming in from people and yourself and others that work on the series, is there ever kind of um, a concern or a fear that, that maybe you're going to go along with something one day and if you don't remember exactly what you've gone along with? Uh, but I, I guess not. If you're dealing with somebody whose dementia is that severe, I guess the worry that you have to keep the lie going. 
Yeah, I'm um, just thinking back. I mean, I'm sure that I had moments of that. Um, but, you know, then you can also distract or, you know, with, with something else and kind of go on, on a different a different path, if you will. Does that... Do you, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again, not 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 doing it from a bad place. You're doing it right because you you want to to make this person uh, keep make them happy and to make them so they I guess so they're feeling like everything's just fine. Yeah, it's really about comfort, you know, and just um, keeping that 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 person just comfortable and uh, feeling safe and 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 cared cared for and and heard. It's also a really good way to acknowledge people um, living with dementia, meeting them where they are. I just feel like, you know, a lot of the times we're trying to direct how we want the day to go or how we want this transaction or interaction to go. And it really does give them um, a say, if you will. Have you talked at all at any point to healthcare professionals or got the, their opinion on this and whether or not it's uh, it's something that they would advise or something that they support? Yeah, I I would say that different. It, there's many opinions out there, right? And different people will have different medical professionals will have a different opinion on that. I've heard heard both, but. A lot of the people that I've worked with in my experience um, were about just keeping that going because it was such a positive tool that was working so well. And it was really getting back to, one, the comfort of my mom and also keeping things easy for me as well because being a caregiver can be a very full-time job. And what's the best way through that and how do you... um, you know, retain your energy and and eliminate any kind of obstacles and just keeping that easy. You know, let's not have there's is there a need for an argument right now with a little bit of therapeutic fibbing? Maybe we can get through that. And, you know, we're on to the next thing. Exactly. And I think anybody who's been in that scenario can relate very much to what you just described. Where can people see the episodes and what else do you have coming up? So we are going to be doing um, four more episodes, and I believe that will be landing sometime in the late spring. Um, people can see Stories for Caregivers at storiesforcaregivers.com. Um, there's a tab that you click all series, and we're front and center there. It's also on YouTube um, and Facebook under Stories for Caregivers. You could search for Therapeutic Fibbing as well. All right. And it sounds like uh, I know you've done a ton of work in the film industry and you've you've done so many things here. And I know you've worked in New York as well, but it, it does sound like this one is is possibly the closest one to your heart. Uh, yes, 100 percent. And uh, I'm just so grateful that it's happening and that other people are are resonating with it. And it's, you know, my my hope is to really be able to help help other people through uh, the experience with the experience in moment. And uh, I really feel like this series is, is doing that. It's definitely very close to my heart. My mom did pass um, earlier this year. And we, when we filmed these episodes, it was over the weekend of her birthday. And I just feel a little bit of, you know, magic in that. So I, I'm very, very grateful that we're, we've been able to do this. I'm very grateful.
All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this. Again, I know anybody that's been in a similar situation or has been impacted by dementia can relate to this. Katrina, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having us on in your time. Really appreciate it.